Thanks, Jesse and team. What wonderful truths for us to be singing, reminding one another of as we prepare this Sunday to hear a sermon on suffering. Thinking about suffering, it, the fact that we can sing with integrity, it is well, it is well with my soul, knowing what each of you walked in here with, knowing the pain of your past that you're probably tempted to think is still following you, knowing the pain of the present to which you're probably tempted, will this ever end? And maybe a little bit paralyzed about the pain of the future that you don't even know is awaiting you yet. To be able to sing, it is well, it is well with my soul, is a testimony to a gracious God who loves us and uses suffering for his good purposes. So today uh, we're going to continue our preaching series through um, this thing that we call the habits of grace. These are habits, they're, they're acts of the will that we perform, as Eric Tana said, in our bodies, mostly in the normalcy of life, in the context of the local church. That's what these habits are. They're the spiritual disciplines that we willfully step into in order to find ourselves in the stream of the flow of God's grace. We've been talking about things like the Word, reading it, meditating upon it, memorizing it, um, proclaiming it to one another. We've been talking about things like uh, prayer and worship and giving and serving. And last week, Kenny taught us about fellowship. These are all spiritual dif- disciplines. These are our means of grace that when we participate in them willfully, we find that they are the, the means that we have God, God's grace flowing to us and through us And they're the means by which we actually grow. Somehow I'm starting on page four. That's not good. Let me try to get where I should be, and then we'll keep going. Um, There we go. So think about that list. Word, prayer, worship, giving, serving, fellowship, suffering. One of these things is not like the other. Would you agree? (laughs) Right? (laughs) As I think about this list, I can neglect the Word. I cannot get up in the morning and I cannot open my Bible and I cannot expose myself to the truth of God's Word. I can neglect prayer. It's possible and I confess to you far too often I go through my day just with my agenda working at what I think my ends and my goals are without giving a thought to the existence of God and that He is with me in that and sharing my day with Him in prayer. I can neglect that. I can neglect serving. I can neglect fellowship. I can sleep in on a Sunday morning and not come here. And I realize that as I preach to you, you're not the ones that need to hear this. (laughs) These are all things that I can neglect. But suffering, suffering's coming whether I neglect it or not. Suffering is like that obnoxious uncle that you don't invite to your party because of the mayhem that ensues. But he shows up anyway. That's what suffering is like. Suffering is different on this list. And I think we spend a lot of time organizing our lives. We spend a lot of time and energy trying to minimize suffering, minimize pain in our life. Right? If you doubt that, look in your medicine cabinet. We're full of pain relievers. We're we're full of things that can 
minimize physical affliction, that can minimize even emotional or psychological affliction, we spend a lot of time trying to shrink down the amount of pain that is in our lives because pain threatens a couple of things that we hold near and dear to us. One, pain threatens comfort, and we all love comfort. We live in a country and a culture that is all about comfort. And two, pain has has the potential to threaten happiness. And we all know that we live in a culture that is obsessed with happiness. How many books have been written on happiness? Lots. I did a little research last week and I found a list of the top 10 books that are written on happiness. And I, I, I read the titles and I wondered and I marveled and I said, what if we were writing books of this style about a thing called suffering? How would those book titles read? Would they be read? I, I didn't think so. So I put together a list of book titles that will likely never be written just by taking titles of known books on happiness, pulling out the word happiness and putting in the word suffering, <laughs> and then having some fun with, with what follows behind that. So these are books that will probably never be written. Authentic Suffering using the new psychology to realize your potential for lasting pain. <laughs> the suffering solution, finding pain and anguish in a comfortable world. The art of suffering, a handbook for living. How about this one, the suffering makeover, how to teach yourself to enjoy pain. That sounds like a, a, man uh, a manual for uh, masochism, but um, suffering now. Timeless wisdom for sensing pain, fast. <laughs> uh, your life manual, practical steps to genuine suffering. And one of my favorites, suffering is a choice. Uh, this one actually has some truth to it. And by the end of this message, I hope that you'll agree with me. That's probably a book that should be written. Because there is suffering that is uninvited, suffering like that obnoxious uncle that we really hedge against. But there is also a kind of suffering that we really should choose to step into. And that will make more sense to you by God's grace as we wade into this thing called suffering. So this habit of grace is one that I, I call probably one of the most universal habits of grace. I, I, I mean universal is we all walked in here with some level of pain. You know what it's like to have a headache this morning or to be... Uh, mitigating some other physical affliction. You know what it's like to carry around um, the lies of the enemy as you wrestle with depression. You know what it's like to feel the pressure of financial pain. You know what it's like to know an enduring loss, either loss of a loved one, loss of a, a spouse or a parent or a grandparent, or God forbid, the loss of a child. We all know what it's like to suffer and to endure pain. And so in this way, this is probably the most universal habit of the habits that we will study. So, how can it, how can suffering be a habit of grace? That's what we'll seek to un understand and seek to unpack uh, today. The Bible actually has something, actually a lot to say about what suffering is. And we will look for biblical answers to three questions today as we examine this idea or this habit of suffering. First question, we'll seek to find a biblical definition for what is suffering. How do we define suffering biblically? Secondly, we'll look at what are God's purposes for suffering? Why does He allow it? 
And thirdly, we'll look at how is it that then we can suffer well in light of this. So before we dive into the Word, before we seek to find answers to these three questions, let's bow our heads and pray. Lord, um, we look to You, the One who is the God of all comfort, the One who is our source of comfort, the One who is um, sovereign over suffering and pain. And we ask that You would be powerfully present among us today, that You would take Your Word and allow it to land on hearts that are prepared by the Spirit uh, to be received as truth for what it is and held tightly, clung to, cherished, so that we can be prepared either to suffer well now as we are suffering or be prepared to suffer well when suffering comes our way. Lord, I pray that You'd give us ears to hear, eyes to see, and I pray that we would grow as a body in how we suffer well together, uh, knowing that that glorifies You. So help us, we pray now as we study. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. So what is suffering? If you ask your friend Miriam Webster, he'll say that suffering is physical pain, mental pain, or emotional pain. And we, we all can resonate with that and agree that, yeah, that sounds really familiar. That's what suffering sounds like to me. But that's not a complete enough definition. If we're going to consult God's Word on this, we need to go deeper than that. It is that, but it is not merely that. Suffering, according to the Bible, is God's just and loving response to sin. Turn with me to Genesis chapter 3. And we'll take and we'll look at these two ideas, that suffering is God's just response to sin, and secondly, that suffering is God's good or loving response to sin. We'll look at that. We'll look at them together. Firstly, we'll look at the idea that suffering is God's just response to sin. Genesis 3, I'll begin reading at verse 11. And this comes on the heels of, of God recognizing that Adam and Eve have disobeyed Him. He gave them everything in the Garden of Eden for their good and for their pleasure, for their resources. And there was one prohibition. It was, do not eat of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And yet they chose to disobey. And now God moves toward them and He says this. Verse 11. He said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? And the woman said, The, the serpent deceived me and I ate. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife, and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat of the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread, until you return to the ground. 
for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. So suffering is God's just response to sin. Pain is now the essence of the curse for Adam and for Eve. Look at how personal this is in Adam. Adam's curse begins here at verse 17. To Adam, God said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Adam was created by God and placed into the garden and given the role of being vice-regent under God over God's creation. He was to till and to keep the garden. It was his job to farm the garden and for it to flourish. He and Adam and Eve together were to work the garden and to keep it. They were to exercise dominion over this good creation that God had made. And this purpose for them, now in the curse, in response to sin, this is a personal response. It's a just response. God had told them what would happen if they chose to sin. Verse 17 of chapter 2, But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day you eat of it you shall surely die. So they did. They chose to disobey, and God now is saying in pain, this is my response to your sin, is death. In the day you eat of it, you shall die. And this response now, this response of suffering, this response of pain, is God's just response to sin. In doing this, in meeting out this curse, He is merely upholding His integrity and doing what He said He would do. This fellowship that Adam and Eve had had with their Creator is now broken because of their sin. And God's response by adding or introducing pain and suffering into His good world that to that point had not known pain or suffering. That's His just response. It's also His loving response. Look at how personal it is to Adam. Adam's life is going to get hard. It will be painful for him to eat of the fruit of the ground as he works his role by keeping and tilling the garden, it's now hard because of his sin. There's pain in this. And God is loving in this, not just by complicating Adam's life, but by doing so in a way that will prevent Adam, a sinful man, from finding his ultimate worth in what he does. I'm a fallen man, and I am prone to finding my worth in what I do. And I think God is wise, and God is personal, and God is loving here to introduce pain right at the point of Adam's role so that Adam will no longer be tempted or the, the temptation will be minimized for him to find his ultimate fulfillment in what he does as his role on this earth, but will then be forced to have his eyes fixed back up on God to look for his fulfillment. This is also true of the curse as declared to Eve. Eve, according to verse 20, her role is to be the mother of all the living. God had created Eve as a suitable helpmate or, a, or a, a, a mate corresponding to Adam. She was to work alongside of Adam in tilling and keeping the garden, and she would be the mother of all the living. They were commanded by God to be fruitful and to multiply, to fill the earth and to subdue it. And it would be through Eve that all of these humans would be born. And now, in her role of being a mother, this 
response to sin, this loving, this personal response to sin, ends up sounding like this. To the woman, God said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. God is not merely punishing Adam and Eve by giving them pain in fulfilling their roles, but He is doing so personally, lovingly, so that they will no longer find or be tempted to find to that degree a fulfillment in what their God-given role is, but that the deck will be stacked for them to look back to God and to look to Him for their ultimate fulfillment. So suffering is God's just and loving response to sin. We also see two more evidences of God's loving response to Adam and Eve on the heels of their sin. Look at verse 21. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. He knew that in their sin, their eyes were open. They recognized their nakedness. They had already done uh, a pretty poor job of covering their nakedness by sewing some fig leaves together. God sacrifices something, uses skins, and covers their nakedness. Do you see how personal he is for them? He knows that there's pain because of their sin, and he makes provision for them. He loves them and demonstrates his ongoing love for them in this way. And lastly, in verse 22 through 24, we see this, another evidence of God's loving response to them. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil. Now lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the gods set him out of the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man. And at the east of the garden of Eden he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword and that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. It was possible for Adam and Eve in their fallen state to apparently take and eat of the tree of life and live forever in that fallen state. And God lovingly prohibits this by casting them out of the garden and setting the cherubim with the flaming sword to guard the way to the tree of life so that they would not know eternal suffering. So that he, he would minimize that for them and create a context in which their sin could be atoned for. So God's just and loving response to sin, that's what suffering is biblically. So what's the purpose for God's suffering? Well, there are, before we go there, let's look at three implications. Three implications from this biblical response or biblical definition of what suffering is. One, God is sovereign over suffering. So whatever suffering you have endured or are enduring or will endure, know that God is sovereign over it. He's ordained it. He's allowed it in your life. And He's not doing it to punish you. He's sovereign over it. Secondly, know this. God Himself is our source of comfort. God Himself is our only source of comfort. And He allows suffering into our life to lift our eyes off of the other earthly things that we're prone to look for for hope and to look to Him who is our comforter. Listen to the New Testament definition of the Holy Spirit. Jesus called Him the Comforter. God Himself is our source of comfort. And thirdly, God uses suffering to accomplish His good purposes. So whatever suffering that you are knowing or have known, 
Be reminded of these three things. God's sovereign over it. He is your source of comfort. And He uses suffering to accomplish His good purposes. So then the next question that we must ask then is what are God's good purposes for suffering? Firstly, God's good purpose for suffering is it is a just penalty for sin. The fact is, is that all who sin fall short of the glory of God and deserve eternal suffering, eternal punishment, and eternal damnation, broken relationship away from Him. That's what is deserved by everybody. That glorifies Him. Because He has set in order, He has set the rules for life and health in this world, and that is holiness. And sin is 180 degrees opposite of holiness. So God is just in allowing eternal punishment as a, as a penalty for sin. That's the doctrine of hell. We understand this and we hold to it. So secondly, God's, eternal God's purpose for suffering is to send His Son. There's a purpose in Christ's suffering. 1 Peter 3.18 says this, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that He might bring us to God. So God saw humanity wallowing around in the sinfulness that resulted from Adam and Eve's disobedience. And into that, God sends His Son. God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in Him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. And this Son, Jesus, fully God, joyfully stepped into our suffering on this earth. And as He did, He took our place. Suffering is God's just punishment for sin. And Jesus came, the Holy One, fully God, fully man, the righteous one, the one who never sinned, lived a completely sinless life, takes on flesh, being born humbly as a baby, child of Mary, raised, knowing all of the common suffering that you and I know of living life in a fallen world, the physical pain, the emotional pain, he knew it all. He knew temptation. And yet, he never fell to temptation. And he willingly offered his life as an atoning sacrifice for our sin, as our substitute. By his stripes, we are healed. It's our sin that held Jesus on the cross. And as he hung there on Calvary's cross, he knew all the excruciating pain of the flogging and the scourging all the excruciating pain of thirst and fatigue, all the excruciating pain of the nails going through his hands and his feet, and all the excruciating emotional pain of being separated from his Father with whom he had unbroken fellowship to that point. Jesus knows suffering. And he took it on. He stepped into it so that he might offer Himself His eternal blood as a once-for-all sacrifice for all sin, for yours and for mine, so that all who believe in Him by faith might be saved. This is the Gospel. This is God's design and purpose for suffering. It's that the fullness of justice would be poured out upon Jesus so that by faith it would not have to be poured out on you or me. God's purpose in Christ's suffering was to restore fellowship with His people. 
Suffering was required in order to purchase our redemption, in order to purchase our salvation. So what then is God's purpose for our suffering? Why should we suffer then if Christ already suffered? Well, there's an ultimate purpose that God allows suffering in the life of His people, and that is this. God allows suffering in the lives of His people to create a context in which we become willing to receive His offer of grace. God uses suffering in our lives so that we will begin to accept His offer of grace. This fleshes itself out in a couple of ways. The first way is this. God's purpose in suffering is to awaken us for our need for God. God is good to allow suffering in our lives to to wake us up, to help us recognize that we are not sufficient in ourselves, that we need God to step in, that we need God. We see a picture of this in Acts chapter 2. If you remember Acts chapter 2, that's the day of Pentecost, the disciples are all gathered together, humbly and obediently waiting, like Jesus had told them to. Jesus is now ascended, and there's this sound of like a rushing wind. And everybody in the town hears it. And then what happens is the Holy Spirit comes down and fills the believers. God comes to dwell again with His people because Jesus' sacrifice was sufficient to make payment for all sin. This fellowship is now being restored. The Holy Spirit comes and He fills the believers and they, became, they begin proclaiming the mighty works of God in languages that they didn't know but in languages of the people who were there in the town who had come from the various regions were able to hear and understand. And they marvel. And they ask, what is this? I'm going to turn to Acts chapter 2. You can turn with me there if you would like to. Acts chapter 2, they ask this question. What does this mean? Verse 12. And some who are mocking say, they are filled with new wine. Don't bother with them. They're just drunk. To which Peter stands up and says this. Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them. Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. For these people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And he begins to proceed by using the Old Testament Scriptures, the prophecy of Joel, to help them understand that these people are not indeed drunk, but they are filled with the Holy Spirit as God had promised would happen. This is exactly what has happened here. They are filled with the Spirit. Peter goes on. He says, This Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified, and you killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. And he continues in verse 36. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. So Peter explains the truth of what is happening there about why these people are talking in various languages. He explains the truth of what happened last week when Jesus was crucified, saying that you guys did this, you crucified him and you killed him, and the suffering of the mental anguish that these people feel upon hearing this causes them to respond in this way. Verse 37, Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. They were convicted. There was mental pain 
as they recognized that they indeed had a, an evil role that they played, as they joined their voice with the crowd when they called out, Crucify Him! And they sent Jesus to the cross. And it was their sin, in part, that held Him there on that cross. And it prompts them, this pain, this anguish that they're feeling, prompts them to ask this question, Brothers, what shall we do? To which Peter responds, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, for the name, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. God allows suffering in our lives to awaken us to our need for God so that we turn from our sin, we repent, and we accept His offer of grace. That's one of God's good purposes in allowing sin among His people. I'm sorry, in allowing suffering among his people. I remember the mental anguish that was part of my own conversion story. I remember the circumstances of physical exhaustion as I was a workaholic. I remember the relational tension that existed between Lisa and me because I was neglecting her and our kids as I strove to provide a living for, for them. I remember the, the defeated feeling of working hard and it bearing no fruit because the weather wasn't right. I remember how empty it felt carrying the, the, the weight of financial stress. And God used all of that. He used all of those things, all of the pain and the suffering of that in my life to get me to a place where I was ready to acknowledge my need for God and to receive His offer of grace. So that when I heard the gospel in the midst of that pain, I joyfully received Christ as my Savior. And my life turned around. And it's not been the same ever since. My question to you is this. Have you had your eyes awakened to your need for God? Is that part of what God is doing and allowing suffering for you right now is to awaken you to the fact that you need God? Have you repented? Have you turned from your sin? Have you, offered God's, have you received God's offer of forgiveness? His offer of grace? Today can be the day that you do that. And I pray that it would be if you haven't already. That's one of God's good purposes in allowing suffering in the lives of His people. Secondly, uh, God allows suffering in the lives of His people because suffering makes us trust God and not ourself. Look with me at 2 Corinthians 1. Just turn from Acts to the right. Acts, Romans, 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians 1. We'll begin reading at verse 8. 2 Corinthians 1, 8. Jesse used this in his worship set. For we do not want you to be ignorant, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia, for we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death, but that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raised the dead. God allows suffering to make us trust in Him, not in ourselves. The essence of sin is that the affections of the heart that were in creation designed to be primarily focused on God now get turned inward and we love ourselves and we trust ourselves. One of our mantras here in America is if you want a job done right, you've got to do it yourself, right? That's not, that's not a biblical, faithful definition. Um, 
So in God, allowing suffering, he helps us recognize that we are not worthy of being trusted ourselves, but he causes us to trust himself because he is the God who raises the dead. And if God can raise the dead, whatever suffering or turmoil or pain that you are facing, it's not too great for him to handle. It's not too great for him to speak comfort to you and to sit with you in that and to carry you through that. God can do it. Thirdly, God's purpose for suffering is that suffering resets our hope on God. Verse 10, He delivered us from such a deadly peril, and He will deliver us. On Him we have set our hope, and He will deliver us again. So we are prone to set our hope in good things, things that God gives us here on this earth to enjoy, family, a house, relationships with people, you name it. You, you fill in the blank. What good thing has God given you to enjoy freely on this earth that you are prone or tempted to make an ultimate thing? To make it that thing that you set your hope in and that thing upon which your, your joy rises and falls. There was a season in my life where I set my hope fully on a 1977 Thunderbird. <laughs> what a fully foolish thing to do. If my car ran well that day, I was ecstatic. If the modification I did on it made it faster, I was rejoicing. If it had a misfire, I was a mess. It, it, we laugh at that because it's foolish, right? But that's just one example of a good thing that God gives us to enjoy that we are prone to make ultimate things. And God allows suffering in our life to reset our hope on Him. And to believe He has delivered us and He will deliver us again. What He's talking about here is setting our hope on Him. Ultimately, He's setting our hope on heaven. On our eternal existence with Him. On the new heavens and the new earth. Listen to Paul in 2 Corinthians 4, 16-18. He says, So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. The things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. So God resets our hope by setting our eyes on the things that are unseen, by setting our eyes on heaven. And suffering sets our hope on these things. And there is a day where suffering will end. Suffering has no place in heaven. It has no place in the new heavens and the new earth. Listen to this from Revelation 21. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be His people. And God Himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. There is a day coming for those of us who are in Christ where suffering will be a distant memory in the past. No longer part of our current struggles. It will be delivered from it fully. For the believer, suffering has an expiration date. And we will enter into the joy of our 
Savior, the joy of our Lord, into eternal bliss where there's no more crying, no more night, no more pain, no more dying. God uses suffering to create a context in which people become willing to accept His offer of grace. That's God's purpose in allowing suffering on this earth. So if that's God's purpose, how then do we suffer well well while we wait for heaven? How do we as believers in Christ suffer well as we wait for heaven? First thing I want you to know is that it's okay if you are suffering, while you are suffering, to ask God to take it away. It's all right. Remember Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane? Praying, toyfully praying. On the night before He would go to the cross, He says, Father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. Jesus knew the physical pain that he was headed for as he went to the cross. He knew the emotional pain that he would experience in separation from God as he bore the sin of all humanity on the cross to make atonement for sin. He knew what he was in for, and he lovingly laid his life down anyway. But before he did, he asked God to remove it. He said, if there's any other way we can do this, I'd rather avoid it. So it's okay for us to do that. We also see Paul do that in 2 Corinthians 12. Turn with me there, 2 Corinthians 12. We'll read verses 7 and 8. Paul is talking about the context of of these great revelations that God is giving him as an apostle. And he says this, So to keep me from being conceited, because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from being conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. Three times. You hear God's good purposes in this? God is using Paul mightily as his servant. He is revealing things about himself and things about humanity that he hasn't revealed to anybody else. And yet Paul, though he surrendered to Christ, is still prone to sin. And he's prone to pride. He's prone to conceit. And God, in his goodness, gives Paul a thorn in the flesh to prevent him from being conceited. And in that, Paul says, three times I pleaded for the Lord to take it from me. Three times. It's okay to ask the Lord to deliver you from this pain that you're in. To deliver you from this affliction. To deliver you from suffering. Secondly, we suffer well when we ask God to take it. We suffer well when we humbly receive God's grace. Let's continue to read in 2 Corinthians 12. Verse 9. But He said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. How do we suffer well? We suffer well by joyfully receiving God's grace in our weaknesses. I hate the idea of weakness especially in myself. But what God is telling me and you here is that weakness is that context in which His grace and His strength can swoop in. When you're strong, we don't need anybody else. 
my plan is going to work. But when we're weak, when we come to that point where we recognize that the best of our resources are bearing no fruit, that's the context when God says, no, my grace is sufficient for that. Because when you're weak, that's when I can be strong. That's when I come in. And Paul's response to that was to joyfully receive it to the point where he boasted in it. And he said, therefore, I'm content in my weakness. I rejoice in it. We suffer well when we joyfully receive God's grace. We suffer well when we allow God's comfort to flow through us to others as well. Look back at 2 Corinthians 1. We suffer well when we allow God's comfort to flow through us to others. 2 Corinthians 1, beginning at verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction, so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. For as we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. If we are afflicted, it is for your comfort and salvation, and if we are comforted, it is for your comfort which you experience when you patiently endure the same sufferings that we suffer. Our hope for you is unshaken, for we know that as you share in our sufferings, you will also share in our comfort. We suffer well when we allow God's comfort to flow through us to others. He is the God who comforts us in all our afflictions. So there's no affliction that you have experienced or are experiencing or will experience that God can't comfort you in. All our afflictions. And He does it for a purpose. So that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction. And this is good news because we do this in the context of the local church. And what if your ministry or your ability to provide comfort for God's comfort to flow through you to others was limited to your personal experience? You only could speak comfort to somebody who was suffering with something that you have suffered with. I don't want to minimize the pain of having walked a mile in somebody's shoes and then speaking words of comfort to them. But God is big enough to allow comfort to flow to us in all our afflictions, whatever they are, so that we can offer that comfort, His grace can flow through us to others who are in other afflictions, any affliction. This is really, really good news for us. We don't have to have walked a mile in that person's shoes in order to speak comfort to them, in order to have God's grace flow through us to them. Next, we suffer well when we allow others to help us. It's okay when we are suffering to invite others in. This is community. We do this in the context of the body of Christ. And so often in our afflictions, we, we isolate ourselves. I think that's what the enemy wants to do to minimize our comfort. That's what he wants us to do is wallow in our sufferings and suffer alone. But it's faithful for us and we suffer well when we allow others to help us. Listen to verse 11. You also must help us by prayer so that many will give thanks on our behalf for the blessing granted us through the prayers of many. Paul actually commands these people to help them by prayer. He's not just merely asking. He commands this help for prayer. We need community in order to suffer well. And as community, we need to pray for one another 
in order to help them suffer well. Lastly, we suffer well when we step into suffering so that grace can extend to others. So suffering is not just something that we avoid, not just something that we try to manage, not just something we deal with on our way toward Christ-likeness. Suffering is actually something that we willfully step into and take on so that God's grace can extend to others. We see this, 2 Corinthians 1, verse 6. If we are afflicted, it is for your comfort and salvation. And if we are comforted, it is for your comfort. Paul's afflictions, he recognized that this was not just about him. He was afflicted because he was working and striving in order to bring the gospel to people who needed to hear it. And he recognized that if he was afflicted, it was for their comfort, comfort in the, in the gospel, and for their uh, salvation. He was striving to bring them salvation. And he recognized that if he himself was comforted, that was because God wanted that comfort to flow through him to others. Paul was a corporate sufferer. And he willfully stepped into suffering of other people. And as he did that, he was imitating Christ. Listen to what he says as he writes in Colossians 1.24. I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. And in my flesh, I'm filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is, the church. Paul rejoiced in his sufferings, and he says, And in my flesh, I'm filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. Is there anything lacking in Christ's afflictions to purchase salvation from sin? The atonement. No, nothing was lacking. Everything that was necessary to make God, uh, God's just decree and penalty for sin, to make that payment in full, happened. The only thing that's lacking in Christ's afflictions is the affliction that required to get that message, that good news of the gospel, to people who are suffering without hope, people who are needing to hear it. And that's what Paul says he's rejoicing in. He's willing to step into suffering like God stepped into our suffering to to bring us a message of hope through faith in Christ, Paul steps into suffering of the Colossians and of all these other churches in order that they might receive salvation from their sin, forgiveness for sin, through faith in Christ. We see examples of this, people who imitate Christ in this way, who suffer well when they step into suffering so that grace can flow through them to others. Think of missionaries who leave everything behind. They leave behind the comfort of home, the comfort of family, they leave behind vocations. They leave, they leave behind all of it in order to go to this unreached people group to learn a new language, to seek to, to get accepted into there so that they can be heard as they proclaim the good news of the gospel as comfort for these people who are suffering apart from Christ. We see this also in faithful husbands and faithful wives who stand before God and His people and declare to one another their faithfulness in sickness and in health. And then, a little while later, stand by each other's bedside through cancer. We see this in parents who willingly step into foster care or adoption and, and welcome 
the drama, welcome the suffering of another dysfunctional family into their own and take that on just so this child has a chance of being comforted in Christ through hearing the gospel and being raised up in a way that by God's grace they can respond to the gospel, accept God's grace, and know forgiveness for sins. There are any number of demonstrations that you all are living out right now that shows you're suffering well by stepping into the suffering of others and allowing God's grace to flow to you and through you to them. That's how we suffer well. And this is something that I, I, I want to commend us on because I think we're doing a good job at. And I also want to exhort us in because I think we have a ways to go to be a people who repeatedly step into the stream of suffering for the good of others. 2 Corinthians 4.15 becomes a prayer of vision for me and for this church. I wish we all could say, For it is all for your sake, so that as grace extends to more and more people, it may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God. We're willing to endure whatever, because it's all for your sake. As grace extends to more and more, God gets glory. It increases thanksgiving to the glory of God. We suffer well when we step into the stream of suffering so that grace can extend to others. So in conclusion, I don't know what suffering you walked in here with. I don't know what's on the forefront of your mind. I don't know what pain you have endured that you're tempted to believe is still following you. I don't know what pain you are enduring that you're wondering if it will ever end. And I don't know what, what future pain that we're preparing right now to be able to endure together as a church. We don't know the future. But whatever it is, we have a God who is the source of all comfort. We have a God who is sovereign over suffering. And we have a God who uses suffering for His good purposes, for our good and for His glory. So let's pause and pray and respond appropriately according to how He would have us respond to these truths. Father, we praise You for who You are. The sovereign God over Your creation who is good, is just, is loving in allowing suffering on this earth to create a context in which we become willing to receive your grace. Lord, I pray that we'd all receive more of your grace today. I pray that we would all grow in our ability to become willing to step into suffering so that your grace can flow to others. I pray that as we do, it would be good for us as we grow in our Christ-likeness and it would glorify you as thanksgiving is multiplied. So Lord, help us, we pray. We love you. We praise you. We know you as the God of all comfort. Help us to know you more. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.